worry about other people's perception of you. Be honest, do you? Do you sit there wondering if the person who you had an interaction with a day ago, how they took that interaction, are they looking at you in a favorable light? Are they not? Do they like you? Do they not like you? Is that something you spend much time thinking about? You know, um, maybe something we've all wrestled with from time to time and then we come in and out of it. And sometimes we don't care too much. And other times we care a whole bunch and maybe too much. Um, and uh, I think when you're in entertainment in particular and you start throwing social media into the mix, it can get real confusing real fast because you put stuff out in the world, whether you're on television or you put videos up or you put some kind of content out in the world, a bunch of people who you've never met get to sit back and critique it and they get to give their opinion of what you've made and also of you. And it may not, it may not measure up to who you think you are. It may not equal that. It may not match up with your own version of yourself. And that can be a really weird and difficult time. Um, we see it a lot now with entertainers and we, uh, we know how quickly things can go away and how quickly things can change or someone's career can take a nosedive based on a tweet or something they said or an interview that they did. And it can change very, very quickly. And, uh, it was interesting. I was watching a Taylor Swift documentary the other night. That's right. Complete party animal over here. Okay. Trent McClellan watching a Taylor Swift documentary on a Saturday night. Okay. Okay. And I can say I really, really enjoyed it. There was one section of that documentary where it talks about, you know, she went through a period in her career where it was, there was a whole, you know, hashtag of cancel Taylor Swift. And there was a lot of hate out there for her. And she was very honest about how it affected her and how difficult it was to to believe that that many people dislike you and there was that much hate and how people were wishing the worst upon her. And, uh, you know, man, when you're just a human being trying to navigate life and trying to work hard at your craft and be successful, you know, you put stuff out in the world, but you can't control how people process it or how they take it or what they do with it at the end of the day. And uh, she struggled with that and she was pretty honest about it. And, you know, for us as comedians, you put stuff out in the world, whether it's, you know, sketches on 22 minutes, whether it's, you know, stand up clips or a joke I write or I put it on social. At the end of the day, I put it out there and I kind of, I kind of, um, you know, believe the Bill Burr mantra on this one where it's like, you know, when you put something out in the world, you know what your intention was when you did it. But at the end of the day, the listener or the viewer will cut it with their own childhood, their own history, their own politics, their own religion, their own beliefs. And then they make it theirs and they get what they want out of it. And they decide what it is you meant. And so it's really out of your hands once you put it out in the world. And I think there's some truth to that. Um, so I, uh, I feel at the end of the day, it's just, it's important to just be as authentic as you can to yourself and know what you're about and always know what your intentions are. And at the end of the day, that's all you can do, you know? Um, but quite often that larger public perception is completely out of your hands. As much as you think you can control it, you cannot. And, um, I've, I've seen that in my own life and I've seen it in other people's lives. And, uh, I touched on this a little bit today, uh, with, uh, this is episode 72 of the generators podcast on the comedy here often podcast network. And my guest is the iconic Canadian broadcaster, Ron McLean. And I met Ron back in 2013. I was chosen to uh, be a part of Canada reads on CBC where we defend books. I defended Lisa Moore's February and uh, I'm going there for the first day. I think it was maybe the media day they had before the um, show even started. I'm in Toronto. They fly me in. I'm in Toronto. Um, and I guess my comedy career had been going all right, but I mean, I a lot of people still didn't know who I was. A lot of people still don't know who I am, and that's fine. Uh, but um, I I get there, and and I know Ron's going to be one of the panelists, and uh, 
I'm sitting there in the studio and I'm just having a coffee and I'm kind of meeting people and you're, you know, meeting folks, the CBC producers and stuff. And then I get this tap on the shoulder and I turn around and it's Ron McLean and he goes, they got a catchy name for black guys in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. And I just remember going, oh my God, he's quoting one of my jokes to me. Ron McLean knows one of my jokes and he's quoting it back to me. It was the fun, it was an amazing thing to me. You know, I'd, I'd watched this guy on television my entire life and now he kind of is familiar with my stand-up, and it was just a a really cool moment. But I always took a large lesson from that moment that as big of a of a person as Ron is in Canada and was at that time too, in terms of you know how many times he's he's one of the most well-known Canadians, you know, and the fact that he walked across the room to introduce himself to me and make me feel comfortable by you know, showing that he knew some of my stand-up, you know, it was just a, a cool, cool thing. And I think shows, you know, kind of the absence of any kind of real ego, you know? Um, and uh, I always thought it was a cool moment and a, and a cool thing for him to do, to do that. And, and we, you know, we chatted the rest of the week and we've worked together on, um, you know, hometown hockey and, and my hometown at Cornerbrook and stuff and, and did some stuff there together and uh, always been very generous. And I've seen him out and about. And we get into that a little bit in this discussion and this interview. We also talk about the situation with Don and everything that went down with that with his longtime broadcast partner, Don Cherry. He's very, very honest about that. And, uh, and I also share a little nugget um, with regard to that as well that maybe you folks may not know of or know about because I haven't really talked about it publicly, but I, I, um, I, I lay that on the table to, uh, to, um, kind of, um, connect with Ron in that, in that moment. So, uh, that's in there too, for you. It's a great conversation. Um, we talk a little bit about sports obviously, but just kind of more about, you know, influences and upbringing and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's a, maybe a side of Ron McLean you may not know too much about. So, um, sit back and I hope you enjoy this episode and, uh, my chat with Ron McLean. Joined by uh, Mr. Ron McLean. I, when was the last time we actually saw each other? Was it in Cornerbrook in my hometown? Yes. The, blessedly, it's the Glen Mill. Uh, so <laughs> at that beautiful old hotel in your hometown of Cornerbrook is because the previous time to that was. Uh, oh, yeah. The champ. Bring back the champ. Still waiting for my belt. <laughs> Let me tell the uh, lesser viewer. Uh he won Canada Reads. Trent was incredible. Uh, he took down Jay Baruchel. He took down Charlotte Gray, who is a uh, you know the queen of literature in our country, uh, and me and Carolyn Wynn, a wrestler. I always remember Carolyn Wynn, who was a gold medal Olympic champion, uh, and I was really mean to her because she was defending Indian Horse by Richard Wagamis. Great, yeah, great book too. Yeah, great book. And and I and she just couldn't believe what happened to Ron. He was such a <laughs> nice guy when we did the Olympics, and he's such a cruel. And there's a lot of people who feel the same. way. <laughs> there was my book, uh, David Bergen, uh, a writer from Steinbeck, Manitoba, who wrote uh, Age of Hope. And I always loved Steinbeck produced David Bergen and Miriam Taves, two incredible authors, each of whom has written as the opposite gender. Oh. David here writes as a woman. And Miriam Taves wrote a book called Swing Low, the story of her dad, as a man and nailed it. And they and they were both like uh, they're. they're command of the human condition raised in Mennonite community, I would have thought, you know, maybe they'd be sheltered or a little more cordoned off from all these grand ideas, but yeah. of course I was wrong again. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, there is a bit of gamesmanship to Canada reads and folks may not know this, but Carolyn Wynn said, Hey, do you want to do, do you want to do supper uh, tonight? Just to kind of take some stress off. I go, yeah, sure. We go out, we have a nice, lovely dinner. We're talking about the show life, whatnot. Next day votes tries to vote the kid off here, Ron. I'm yeah. like, what? Oh yeah. Whoa, I tell you, I was what this is okay. We're putting on the gloves now. This is this is we're going at it. So uh it was a great experience. And I still tell people probably one of the most nerve-wracking moments of my life, because as you know, it's one thing to be on air and, and doing your own thing, but when you're defending somebody else's work mm -hmm. that they've put so many years into, you want to do it justice. And so I, I felt an incredible amount of pressure. I don't know about yourself. Sure, absolutely. Uh, I, I thank my lucky stars for a number of things. It got me into reading uh, away from non-fictional 
little bit. Uh, I remember Jane Urquhart's Away was one of the books, and there's a passage in that that I often go back to about an 11-year-old boy from Ireland. It's all fiction, uh, yeah. but it, it really stuck with me. And honestly, Trent, I've read more since we did that series than I ever did prior. Yep. Uh, that's that's one blessing. And then, as you say, just opened your eyes to, uh, to learning about authors in our country, and we are so deep. I mean, Newfoundland, your home province, uh, you defended Lisa Moore, but uh, it just begot uh, a whole opening of my uh, eyes to to how fantastic uh, the writing is in our country. And and I steal like you must, you know, <laughs> I'm always looking for muses. I got to say right. night after night after night. Hey, big game tonight. <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to think of a new way to say big game tonight in my 35th year at hockey night. And that's been a... A godsend to, to to open my eyes to to reading in Canada. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So um, the world shuts down in uh, in March, April. Uh, the world as we know it no longer exists. Where are you at that moment? What uh, when the when the ground shakes? Where are you, and and how does it go down for you? Well, I just got home. So we were doing Rogers Hometown Hockey in Salmon Arm, BC. And I was telling you uh, before we started that I was flying in and out of Vancouver for the three weeks before the shutdown. Uh, and North Van was one of the early outbreaks. So I, I was a bit concerned about that. And in fact, I had flown from Salmon Arm. I, I drove down to Kelowna, flew Kelowna, Calgary, did a quick event for the Flames, then home on what would have been around March 12th. And I had to check back. You know, I had gone a combination of Air Canada, Ward Air, or not Ward Air, WestJet. <laughs> yeah, that's a... <laughs> I am really uh, living in the past uh, with this pandemic. Right, uh, for, right, Brothers Airline. And yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so anyway, I was listening to Buddy Holly. No, better not go there. Amelia uh, Earhart is our pilot. Yeah. So we're going across the Atlantic. This is so <laughs> funny. So I, I checked back and I was safe that uh, there was no contract tracing to the flights that I had taken home. And then that night I got home and I played beer league hockey. And uh, we sat in the bar after beer league hockey. We really didn't know what was going on, but there looked to be some commotion in the broadcast. And it was, of course, it was a Wednesday, Scotiabank Wednesday night hockey telecast where they were announcing, looks like this is it. This will be the last time we play for a while. Amazing. It's amazing. Um, I don't know about you, but I've I've told folks this a little bit on the podcast. When it all went down, I think to be completely transparent, there was a sense of panic that I kind of went through of like, well, what what does all this mean and what can we touch? And I just remember those those early days of being so unsure. And then once I kind of gathered myself again, I thought this is a really good time to kind of do an audit on my life in general. So in terms of like friendships, relationships, what I'm doing with my career, uh, the podcast, why am I doing the podcast? Like really putting things under a microscope. And I think that saved me in a way that I was able to really ground myself again and kind of, I don't know if I would have done that. If this had not happened, I think I would have just kind of continued to just do what I do. And, you know, you, you know what it's like in this world and the business sure. that we're into stuff is moving a million miles an hour and you just next, next, next. And so the blessing for me was the ability to slow down and really um, kind of take an audit of my life. I don't know if that makes sense. And did you? Did you uh, it totally makes moment? sense. I think everybody had a little moment of uh, introspection uh, born of uh you know, being like I, I use the expression, we are stuck in our dwelling, mm-hmm. uh, which is, of course, a reference to the house we're in, but it's or whatever we're in. Uh, but it's also the the head we're in, uh, the dwelling that, you know, you were allowed. And I always remember Judy Rankin, with whom I worked on golf, said, I, I want to be busy because I don't want to dwell. Right. <laughs> and, yeah, and there's a little right. bit of that. It's self-preservation, right, to keep rinse and repeat and uh, tackle the next challenge. Uh, but I enjoyed that, Trent. I was saying to you, I, I did a series from April 1st to the end of uh, June called In Conversations. So I would interview two people uh, and I really kind of morphed away from sport into obviously George Floyd Floyd had been killed. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we were our conscience was raised to a level of uh, introspection about uh, Black Lives Matter, social justice issues. And I really enjoyed uh, doing a series of interviews uh, away from Hockey Night in Canada or golf. Mm -hmm. Uh, That that was a great time. And I and I felt a little bit of withdrawal when it ended. Uh, We had to get ready to do the Stanley Cup playoffs. Hockey was coming back. And I felt like it was a very uh, good expression of things that, you know, I've been reading. Uh, most of my reading, Grapes and I, and you can go there if you feel, uh, Don Cherry and I have been on sort of the cusp of a, of a of an ethical crisis our whole career, right? right, are, right. are we doing the right thing? Is this comedy or is this actually influencing right. in the wrong way? So I was always kind of attuned uh, to, to these issues. And, you know, like they say, uh, how do you attune someone to racism without making them a racist? And it was a great three months that I thoroughly enjoyed. Right. Uh, and when it ended, I felt uh, like an athlete after the Olympics, uh, a bit of a crash. But on the whole, I uh, was grateful for the slowdown. You know, things, 
That's the only way you see change is when you slow down. That's why books are so great. They, mm-hmm. they move at a speed that allows you to see change. Uh, yeah. So I very, very much have enjoyed uh, for, for as awful as it's been and uh, difficult as it's been. Um, I've, I've enjoyed the pandemic for that awakening because we, we had you and I are old enough to have experienced SARS and AIDS, uh, 9-11. So it's not like the world hasn't had its moments of, wow. Yeah. What are you doing with yourself? Yeah. But this one, this one somehow has felt different. Yeah, I think you're right, too. And I think it's just the length of it and the amount of uncertainty yeah. you feel on a daily basis. I mean, that's that literally, that's right. literally feels like the ground under your feet is moving at all times. I want to talk about interviewing a little bit because, you know, I'm um, the 70 odd episodes into the, the podcast. And obviously, we do a lot of pieces with 22 and something that I really gained a lot of respect for over the last bunch of years is, is the ability to interview and to talk to people and to leave space. Do you, did you model your style of talking to people in a professional sense after anyone? Were there people that you looked at and said, I really like how they do that? Because we often look at the subject, right? And what the subject's saying, but a good interview, I look at people like Johnny Carson back in the day where he would give the comedians, he would just set them up and let them walk into it. You know, and I always, you know, you don't realize that at a younger age, but as you get older, you go, oh, no, he's he's putting them on a pedestal to let them shine, you know, and on a different show, we've all done those radio shows where it's the bear and hey, I'm Tom, we got Ron McLean in here today, and he's trying to out funny you the whole time. That's like, what, it. Am I, what am I doing here? What, <laughs> why did I come in here at 5 a.m.? Um, did you have any idols in that? Oh, sense? gosh. Well, Johnny Carson was a huge influence in my career. When I was young, Trent, I worked at CKRD Radio in Red Deer, and I did the 8 to Midnight show, and I would always spin three records a sweep at the end of the evening so that I could fly home and catch the monologue. Right. Uh, and I remember, Johnny, uh, there was a story about Steve Martin was about to do a tour. The two comedians, Robin Williams and Steve Martin, were constantly on with Johnny. And uh, so Steve had prepared a little bit that he wanted to do on these shows, which was a, a run of Johnny Carson and Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas and all the talk shows. And the idea was he had purchased a Greyhound bus and he had souped it up and he was going to make it a sports car. And he had painted a really flashy Greyhound on the side of the bus. And the idea was he would open the door and he would say to a woman on the sidewalk, hey, want to jump in the back seat? And he figured his odds were 45 to one with a Greyhound bus. So this was the bit. Johnny, he let him do the story, but the other hosts all butted in before uh, he could deliver the the punchline. And Steve always said, that's the key is to allow that guest. And and for me, the influence was my boss in Red Deer, gentleman named Wayne Heinrich. We had a, Two tickets to the Red Deer Russell Junior A franchise were giving away hockey tickets and you call in and win. And I was the hip hop DJ. And the next day, Wayne Heinrich, who used the radio pseudonym Wayne Barry, he said, Ron, look, uh, I'm not saying it was awful, but the guy was good enough to listen to our station, excited to call you. Uh, You should have made him the star. Uh, If you want to shine let your guest be the star. And that was the ultimate wisdom. And, uh, and I can't say that I've always done it. You know, like if I'm in the throes of an interview with Gary Bettman and it's about labor relations and I feel well-armed, you know, unfortunately yeah. I'll, I'll start to slip from a nice red heart into a black heart. <laughs> but if I have a red heart uh, at the best of times, it's, as you said, space is the breath of art. And yeah. it's hard for us to remind ourselves of that. Uh, you get, I think you get more humble uh, as you grow older. Uh, so you're, you're not out to prove yourself as much. And uh, I think that's a, that's a, blessing that comes with age. Yeah, I think you're right. It comes with a little bit of security and a little bit of, of, of understanding yourself and that there's enough pie for everybody. You know, you, right. you don't need to steal every single moment. Um, and uh, and I also feel too, someone gave some, listen to a, someone give some advice once and said, quite often now in conversations, we're trying to convince someone of our point of view as opposed to just listening, you know, and, and being open to learning something new. And I think that's that's two very different intentions you know, when, when people sit down these days, when they rarely do. Well, I mean, beginning with George Floyd, the, the, the revelation of my life, and I'm 60, was uh, I used to think we're all the same. And we are all the same, but uh, our experiences are so different. Yeah. Uh, and that's where, you know, you just have to take a step back and realize it's not well enough to say, yes, men and women are the same. Right. Uh, you know, we, I don't walk out the door and think, you know, I'm alone. Do I have to look over my shoulder and on and on? Uh, so that, that was a that was a big part of this year for me and uh, a really joyous, you know, you and I, they, they pay us to talk. But I think in a way this year they paid us to listen, yeah. uh, especially maybe me. You know, you're 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 creating like when I watch Dave Chappelle. 846. And I sat back, Trent, and I thought, like, I will never speak that language. 
Right. Uh, but I don't have to. You right. know, that, that let Dave do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so that's that's a it was a really, really great year to sit back and, and think about like I'm reading a lot, uh I'm reading Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist and women's right advocate. I'm reading his book and uh oh my god, it's it's profound. And I read Tanahasi Coates, uh, Between the World and Me, and these are all books that take you into that experience. Uh, I read uh, Rebecca Solnit, uh, Recollections of My Non-Existence, and that's more on feminicity. Yep. So it's really stopped me in my tracks. Uh, and, and said, okay, you know, yes, you may have 35 years at HockeyNet in Canada and stories to tell galore, yeah. but it would be a good idea to button up. Yeah, yeah, I know. It, I've, I've had the same experience where I feel like I, I don't know it all, and my experience is kind of unique to me, but people are living very different lives on a daily basis, and so mm-hmm. it is that pause allows you to do that and kind of step back and, and take that in. Um, the other thing I've realized, too, you know, we're, we're walking around the bustling streets of Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, Ron, and uh, funny side story, we're at the uh, the grocery store that was formerly Humber Gardens um, with the Cornerbrook Rolls play back in the day, and our field producer on 22 Minutes, a great guy named Corey Gibson, we're standing there and someone comes up to you and they want an autograph and someone came up to me and they want an autograph. And then someone looked at our field producer, Corey, and said, I know who you are. Sign right here. Sign right here. And Corey goes, no, no, no. I have just a few. He goes, no, no, no. Don't you try. I know who yeah. you are. And he insisted that Corey sign the paper. And I said, Corey, your work is seen far and wide. Do not think there aren't fans here looking to see Corey Gibson in the flesh. And we, we cried. But the thing I was going to ask was, You've always been so patient with people. You've always left time, and we talk about leaving space, but you've always left time for people and and not kind of hidden, you know, because it can be when you know when you go through the door, there's probably going to be people wanting some of your time. Is that something you learned from someone else? Is that something you took from someone else? That's a product of being an only child and a military kid. Uh, I was really lucky in the two senses. I was moving around, uprooted constantly. Just when I kind of hit my stride with one group of friends, I would lose them and I'd have to start anew. And I didn't have, uh, I I regret not having sibling rivalry for sports. Would have been healthy. Uh, But I do love that I had to kind of force myself to make friends and and create a family outside of the household. My father worked shift work. My mother worked. Uh, So I, I would have been a really lonely boy and often was especially when we'd land in a new setting. So that was a great uh, gift to be able to make friends. And, you know, as a result, I was a yappy kid and I would be captain of my hockey teams and presidents of the students' unions, do the, you know, speeches at graduation time, just because I was an only child and I needed to kind of do that. Yeah. Uh, but it turned out to be paving the way for this career where, you you know, you gladly welcome folks into your nest because that's what you always did. Right. Uh, and I, and I think, yeah, I, I credit the military Trent and, and, and especially, uh, you know, an only child. And, and another thing just about, you know, I often think I listen. Kevin BX has just joined us at hockey night in Canada and he's fantastic, brilliant guy. Uh, and he's, he's right back to the very first thing almost that Don Cherry said to me is you are what you're perceived to be. Right. And it really bothered me. You know, it's like, no, I'm not. I'm not what I'm perceived to be. But of course, the world is full of judgment and uh, and even more so now with the socials. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're not what you're perceived to be. And I, I've inherently fought that all of my life. I, I have wanted people to know you're not what you're told you are. You, right. you, you, you are something much greater. And if I can give you any vote of confidence, then I feel good. Yeah, I hear you. That, that makes total sense. Um, it is a weird thing, though, to walk through life, like walking into a coffee shop, for example, and wondering, you know, is someone going to come up to me right now? Is someone going to whatever? And I understand why, you know, massive celebrities would move to Maui or Dave Chappelle right. would move to small town Ohio and go, yeah, I can walk out the door here with my children and we just go get our coffee and we walk down the street. There's a there's a beauty to that. But you also accept that there's also another side and people sometimes that can be the uplifting part of their day is to to meet someone and go, oh, I saw this person and they signed my thing and gave me some time. I don't know if there's anything more valuable you can give someone than your time. So um, it, it's it's but I, I've always said that if I talk to you again, I was going to go, yeah, you walk that balance well, you walk that line well. And I know people really appreciate when you give them that time. Well, I, I look forward to it, right? I, I mean, there's always two teachers in the room and, yes, and the lesson comes from the craziest uh, spots. So uh, that's that's the gift of all of that. And it's like our, our love-hate relationship with the socials. I, I, I sometimes 
see the vitriol and I, I'm just like, why do we even have that? Uh, it's Marshall McLuhan. We shape our tools and then our tools shape us. But the flip of it is for so many children who uh, may be autistic, so many children who may be just shy, so many uh, who may be isolated because of their uh, sexual, uh, you know, their gender, their uh, ethnic, uh, all kinds of different reasons why they may feel isolated. And they have this chance to be uh, in a gathering of like-minded uh similar souls, that's a value. So there's there's trade-offs at every step of the way. And uh, one of them with celebrity, of course, is a, is that, you know, feeling of maybe getting overwhelmed at times and you can't live up to it. Right. Um, but the flip of it is, uh, yeah, you, you're just, you're constantly learning. And that's back to the reading where we started. Uh, as we go through life, what's better than that? True, true. I, uh, I've always, I do find it fascinating that whole, you know, how we evolve as, as we get older and, and how we do realize that we do not know it all. Um, I look at my own psychology and kind of my own childhood and kind of how it shapes my thoughts around different things. And sports for me, you know, as a black kid growing up in an all white town, sports for me was a way to get accepted. It was like, if I can make this soccer ball do what I want it to do, suddenly I, I move up, you know, and now I'm accepted. And people are like, we want that guy, you know, and it, it created a lot of confidence in me. I, my grandparents raised me. My grandfather passed away by the time I was in grade eight. So I didn't really have a male figure in my life. So coaches were a big deal to me. Coaches saying good job. Coaches saying well done. I was always looking for that validation, but it gave me an extreme amount of confidence, but also an identity that I held on to very tightly. So therefore, I took losses way harder than I should have. It was way more personal than it should have been. Um, what, what did sports do, do, do for you, do you think, at the end of the day? Well, it did do that. Uh, there's no question. I felt like if I was a jock, that put me on a, a pedestal. But right. it's so silly. Again, it's back to perceptions. It's back to you are who you are perceived to be. Well, just because you're a good hockey player, golfer, etc. What's that got to do with anything? Um, but it's, it's kind of... Uh, Again, you, you need something to help uh, build your esteem. Uh, so it does have that. I think the teamwork part is the part I enjoy more. Uh, you know, and again, I said uh, I had no brothers and sisters. So without sibling rivalry, there wasn't really a great competitive gene in me. I had the unconditional love of mom and dad and a bit of a fawning, not overly spoiled. My mom was lovely about putting me in my place, but still. I didn't have to search out that uh, validation uh, and sports. I, I, I just love, you know, I, when I think of Gretzky, uh, his greatest gift was the way he incorporated the fourth liner and made them part of the team. They partied together. They did everything as a unit. Yep. Uh, and that, uh, you know, right now, as we go through this incredible period of uh, polarizing politics, um, you know, who, who can find the voice uh, that unifies? It's so hard uh, to, to create these. Uh, like I was listening to, again, an author, Rebecca Solnit and another author uh, discussing, you know, that great divide. And, and within their homes, you know, some of the family were Trump and some of the family Biden. And they couldn't understand why they couldn't hear each other. Right. And in the case of the Trump supporters, it was like, well, you're so arrogant. You know, you and the left you, 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 with your pious, you know, self-righteous. Uh, and so these are these are all things that you and I are constantly figuring out. Uh, how, I think we both sort of subscribe to the laughter is usually the, the yeah. easy tonic yeah. to, to, to cut through all that. But uh, that, that's a, that's a been a great, uh, for me, the lifelong journey. I, I listened to uh, a read, I should say, a guy named Harold Bloom has a book called Where Shall Wisdom Be Found? And in it, he compares all the great wisdom writers. One of the best chapters is where he compares Cervantes, the Spanish author of Don Quixote, to Shakespeare. And in both cases, they went to conversation as the method with which to reach, you know, wisdom. Uh, Don Quixote was a, an old school teacher who wanted to be a knight, errant knight. And so he hires a peasant farmer, Sancho Panza, to be his squire, and they go off doing great deeds. And just their conversations, you know, are these kernels of brilliance. Uh, so we, we need to talk, uh, I guess. You know, there's lots of people that don't, too. And I, and I understand that. Lots of people who've come back from wars and, uh, you know, with their PTSD, it's just... They'll be good to be in company with others, but they don't want to talk. So right. you, you got to respect that. Uh, for sure. Um, I did an interview uh, a couple of years ago and someone said, you know, Trent, you made it, you know, and they were, they were you know, pumping my tires and I get what they were saying. But I, I said, I don't think you ever feel like you made it. I, I don't know anyone who's had any measure of success, I guess, on a world stage who thinks they've arrived, you know, and mm -hmm. I look at someone like you, you've had a long career, you've done this for a long time. What is your thought process around that? that do, you, do you ever get a sense of like, yeah, it's, it's a, I did. I, I always feel like stuff can go away tomorrow. Like I, yeah. I, I, I've always lived that way. 
I always pray that I have that, uh, like I, when I introduced the Tragically Hips last show, I was kind of uh, channeling Samuel Johnson, a literary critic who uh, wrote uh, uh, The Vanities. Uh, it's not On Fire of the Vanities. It's uh, Anyway, Vanities by Samuel Johnson is about uh, vanity, obviously. And, and it's a little bit about, you know, that genius needs to find its uh, right medium in order to succeed. And then once you find your stride, you know, how do you tame the tyranny mm-hmm. of vanity? Right. Uh, and I, I love that. I, I love Jimmy Buffett. Simple as that. Newfoundlander, you know, his, his idea, you know, if it suddenly ended tomorrow, I'd smile and some of it's magic, some of it's tragic, but I had a good time all the way. Yeah. I hope that I can just walk away. So when I introduced the hip, I kind of channeled the two of those to sort of <clears> under their favorite. My favorite song by the tragically hip is the wherewithal and the yeah. line. And I actually butchered it when I delivered it the night in uh, Rio de Janeiro. I was in at the Olympics and they were in Kingston. And the line in the song is, I always loved that guy. He's not on TV anymore. To get out before, he had the wherewithal. I said, I always loved that guy. He's not on TV anymore. He had the wherewithal to get out before. No big deal. But it's like I said, it was the night Christmas before. I right. kind of got the words in the wrong order. Right. Uh, but that that basic marching order, I love that guy. He's not on TV anymore. To get out before, he had the wherewithal. Is a way of saying, you know, did you really need the fame and the fortune? I pray, and I'm only, you know, I haven't, it haven't, hasn't been put to the test yet, but I, I always in my life when I was a boy, I used to love uh, hockey and all sports, and there were some examples of uh, people losing their legs to sarcoma or different uh, cancers, and I, I, for whatever reason, I was fixated on thinking, how will I deal with it if I lose my leg? Will I, will I have the strength uh, to soldier on? Uh, and I and I feel the same way about life. Uh, you know, what what could you take from me? I mean, if you if you fired me tomorrow, right? How, how could that affect me going out and seeing a sunrise, breathing the air, and hearing a song? It shouldn't. That's right. So I, I just cloak myself in that sense of uh, this is all lovely, and I work extremely hard at it, and I feel very uh, you know responsible in the work that I do, and I want it to have a a bit of an ethical bent and a bit of an education bent and a bit of an entertainment. So you can't just show up. Uh, yeah. But it's like uh, Salvador Dali, just to get uh, philosophical. He said, uh, I don't do drugs. I am drugs. Right. You want to be that. You right. want to you you just, rather than you know, find it as, a, as some kind of a vice, just have it be you. And you is enough. As, as I said to Freddie Sasakibus, we just lost a great indigenous hockey player, the first. Uh, and his coach was uh, Moose Jaw Canucks. And he said, you know what the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is ready it's you right and no, it's always you yeah just you it didn't yeah. have to be you in the nhl or you uh yeah it was so good well i i do see that a lot now you think with kids on social media and kids trying to go viral with videos and things and you see celebrities struggling with addiction and depression mm-hmm. and i think one of the greatest tragedies and i've said this to a number of people is that if you think you know achieving a certain level of success is going to ease all that pain the big letdown is when you re- achieve all those things and it doesn't. And now you're really screwed because you you thought that was going to be the magic tonic. And now you have the tonic and it's doing nothing. And that's got to be a dark, dark day for people, you know. And, and I, I think you need to get your head right. Like I, I know a lot of bands who've had success and they, they've often been set. They said the, the, the key to their success has not been the music so much as it has been a mindset of how do we keep this together as a friendship and as brothers? How do we do this? Because if we can maintain that the rest of it will come and go and you'll be a hit and you'll be a flop and, and all those things, but we'll be able to maintain our mental health and just the health of the group. If we, we focus on those things. And, and that's something I've tried to focus on the last number of years is because the ride is, as you know, is, is just, it's a roller coaster and it's, you know, if you're, if you're living and dying by that, you will live and die every single day, you know? And so I, I think that's important. When we did Canada Reads, that was the joy, right? There were five of us uh, from very uh, different backgrounds and situations, and but you could feel us as a team. You know, yeah. we, we were all a bit scared, even Charlotte, who's a oh, yeah. you know, writer. Uh, and I, I love that. You know, now we were kind of in it together. How are we going to be supportive of one another, but challenge one another? Right. So it's a healthy rivalry. You yeah, know, yeah. And, then, and I think that's, a that's again, sports taught me a little bit about that. And uh, I, I just feel like it's a, a golden opportunity to – to, to work for the other, you know, when you, when you constantly remind yourself uh, to put your mind and shoes and feet in the place of the other, yeah. hard to go wrong then. For sure. Uh, well, we have a bit of a shared experience and I don't know if you know it, uh, and I haven't really talked about it too much uh, publicly. I don't think I've ever talked about it, but the situation that you had uh, with Don and, and all the turmoil that transpired from that, 
When I joined 22 Minutes, uh, Sean Majunder was a member of our cast. We have a year together and we're working together. In the second year, Sean is not brought back. And a lot of people then, their eyes came back to the show after not watching for a little while. And then they were like, who's this other guy? What's it? And so it was perceived almost that I replaced Sean. Well, meanwhile, we had worked together, you know, like we were, we were side by side for the first season. And so I took a lot of bullets online. I took a lot of hate, a lot of heat. And it was hard because you're like, I had, no, I had nothing to do with and I don't even, I, I'm just here to go to work every day. And that's my friend, by the way. Like, that's someone I, I didn't want to lose. I want this person by my side. And I was excited to join the team and be, to work side by side with him. And, uh, and that was a rough time for me. You know, I really had to kind of dig deep to kind of navigate that. Mm -hmm. Talk about the situation with Don, how you dealt with it, what was going through your mind at the time. Oh, boy. You know, obviously, I was shattered, Trent. Uh, I was confused. Uh, it happened in a, it was a bit of a whirlwind. I was part of a secondary show, the Rogers hometown hockey show. So I wasn't there, you know, to be able to go over to Don's house on the Sunday morning and say, look, Don, here's, here's what I think is our reality. I certainly phoned him like 10 times that Sunday. Uh, and in a nutshell, Don was just making a decision that he wasn't going to apologize and that he'd had enough of that. And I think it was a combination of that uh, plus new brooms must sweep. We had had some new leadership who were going to make a, a, a decision based on what Rogers they felt was in their best interest. And I like always, you know, you, you may think you're King queen, but we're pawns. Uh, and, and I was, I was sort of shattered. I, I, I knew that Don and I were good and we are good. You know, we, yeah. we spoke on Christmas Eve. I dropped off a six pack of beer and peanuts, the things that we used to share together after broadcasts uh, he phoned. And then I phoned over and, you know, I had a great conversation with him on boxing day for an hour. Um, we were never going to change Don in terms of, uh, do you see, you know, the covenants that we're all signing these days uh, as part of what we think is an improved world? Uh, I wasn't going to change Don into that. And uh, he he just, anyway, it was really challenging. And then, of course, came the backlash. Right. You know, now I am Judas, I'm Brutus, I'm the, I'm the backstabber that uh, carried on. Well, you know, he walked the plank. Really tough. Uh, but there's... There's my training in you are not what you're perceived to be. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, it's it's hard to watch it. It's hard to hear it. It's hard to, you know, walk around with police protection every stop of the Rogers hometown tour. Uh, I was like Dr. Fauci down in the United States who was telling people there's this virus, coronavirus. Right. And, you know, he was hated for it. There's always a. So, yeah, it was a, it's been a test. And uh, like everything, you know, when you're 60, as I am, uh, you, you know that, OK, People are mad, and, and even I was upset. Uh, they have a, they have that right, yeah. But don't take it so personal that you you know you devolve into a, you know a, you know either depression or substance abuse or some other form of handling or coping that that would be destructive, self destructive. Yeah. So I, I, I you know I you just you just pray for people's understanding that, that you know that they can see that it was Don's decision. Really, at the end of the day, it was. Uh, he was eighty six years old, and I think he felt. Enough. Uh, I, I shouldn't speak for Don, but, you know, as two friends, it was one of those where I kind of needed him. <laughs> Yours is different. Yours is a corporate decision or a decision made. Uh, yeah. This this one, you know, at core as well, was technically right on the money. You know, Don had said something that we both, I should have caught. Couldn't I couldn't find a way in that little crazy window we were on Coach's Corner. I had six seconds and I wasn't really sure how bad it was. Right. Not to defend myself. Should no, never no. be in that. But but anyway, it, it got away on us. It was as simple as an apology the following week and an explanation uh, or a clarification. And I think we would have been fine. Mm -hmm. And I, I just couldn't bring Don to that side, to my side. And uh yeah. And within the hockey constituency, uh, you know, just like your viewership of 22, uh, that that's it's just they don't yeah. want to hear all that. They, yeah. they, they just know what they liked. And yeah. you somehow are culpable. Uh, right. And that was a hard, hard road. But uh, in the end, it was because the road was the right road. And I was so convinced of it. And Don knows my politics or my ethics better, better said. Yeah. Everybody kind of construes it as a political thing. You know, it's a, yeah. it's a Trudeau. Uh, most of my hate is, you know, you and Trudeau. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it, it kind of falls along political lines, but I think it's more uh, just a, I don't know if it's generational, but I certainly know that it's, uh, you know, my ethical training is that you can't project an attitude on anybody, including right. immigrants who choose not to wear poppies. You, you, you might be right about it, but you certainly can't say it. Uh, yeah, yeah. And you and you better be very careful that you're right about it and 
we weren't. So right. yeah, tough, tough go, but I just keep, you know, keep keeping on and hope that, uh, as you said, this is a Valley, uh, and, and within my training, uh, I'm, I'm equipped to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, again, it gets back to what we talked about earlier too, just about you, you cannot put all your eggs in that professional basket. You know, you, you've right. got to go to a place of who is Ron McLean as the person, you know, and, yes. and uh, that will be your foundation. And, and of course, family, friends and all those things. But it's it's one of those things I thought a lot more about afterwards. You know, we things change so quickly and then everyone piles on and then you know, you'd wake up in the morning to a thousand messages with this thing on the lips and minds of people and now they've all formulated their opinion and it's it's a tsunami of of emotion and uh, invective mm-hmm. and it's when you're on the other end of it it's it's uh, oh. it's a crazy thing well you you know your yours is comedy and mine is uh, a pseudo philosophy that i try to impart you know in my little tidbits I, I try to teach and you know a person convinced against their will is unconvinced still right uh so it was just like oh my god you know so many things i, I mean i have 35 years 33 with don yeah. half my speeches half my funny stories are don and they still will be to an extent yeah. um, but it was like wow i was just part of an arranged divorce and right. and, and I, I i had never been through a divorce <laughs> i i don't think i'd really lost a friend in my whole life and yeah. i haven't as i say i want to be very clear yeah, yeah. grapes and i are good uh but but it, you know with the viewer uh there was uh there was definitely this feeling that i had uh crossed him and uh betrayed him right and those are just awful you know things to feel like you you know you, as i said you should know better than to to read that and believe it and i don't but i still don't like reading it and i don't like i, I it was the just the strangest thing to to walk off an airplane at four in the morning because i would fly after saturday night hockey night in canada i would get on a flight at around midnight to get out to vancouver or calgary or edmonton to go on to another community for the show i was doing sunday night and to, to get off the plane at four in the morning and have big six foot five security guards flanking you at four in the morning for fear that a, a grapes lover was going to come at you, you know, yeah. uh, because we had coffee thrown and all kinds of things and signs and wanted posters. And it was wow. like, wow, you know, like, how did I end up in this? And, and, and I almost said, you know, to myself, Trent, I don't know who you are, but it's the price. You know, if, if you're yeah. going to, if you're going to jump the shark of celebrity, <laughs> if you're going to, yeah. if you're going to yeah. live in that arena. Yeah. You know, I refereed. I, I got yelled at a lot when I refereed hockey. Yeah, yeah. And I could dust it because I felt like I was doing what was a purposeful uh, intention that was good. Yeah. <laughs> and I and I rationalized it that way, and I still do. But oh boy, you know, and I know it's. Uh, it, you, I, I feel for children who get that. You know, I, I feel for young people who who experience that kind of social media bullying, uh, and I, I hope. Yeah, well, bullying has gone on in schools since time immemorial. So I suppose if you think about it, it's been there at a, at a level uh, for a long time. And and we need to. I think we're doing a good job of trying to to yep. move society with our stories uh, to a better place. For sure. Yeah, I, I think the great uh, uh, quote I heard about what we were talking about about you know just when you're when you're in the crosshairs and it's, it's kind of what you signed up for a little bit. As someone mm-hmm. said, uh, when you take a big bite out of life, life takes a big bite out of you too. And uh, that's what you sign up for. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it right. It's, it's just what it is. And it's not yeah. for everybody. But I, I think about people like Justin Bieber. And I think this kid blows on the scene at 14, 15 years of age. He's just a child. And the arrows came right away. And I, I think, you know, even as a comedian, I, I sometimes go, who deserves the the ridicule or the joke? You know, I often think of that. Who could handle it? And for myself as a comedian, I don't think I've ever done a joke about Justin Bieber because I often worry about that's the kind of thing where you, you hear a headline the next morning of, you know, found in a hotel room. I, I worry about that kind of stuff. That for people sure. Go, you know, how much can one person take? This is a human being on the other end of this. And how much can they handle? And then after the fact, everyone's sorry and sad. It's like, if it, where was all that compassion while the person was alive? Yeah. You know, I'm amazed by that. I, I am, too. Yeah, You know his new song, Lonely, right? It's, yeah. uh, it just breaks me when I listen to it and uh, I understand it. You know, I'm, 
I'm at, uh, and so are you, you know, at uh, row 2,000 or 2 million in a church that he's in. But yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, it's still, we kind of understand at a micro level what it's like to hit, get hit hard that way. And uh, he obviously has had it. And many, uh, many people have had to endure it. And, and you feel those scars on their on their continents. Uh, so, yeah, we, we need to work at that uh, as, as a group. And that's why watching, you know, things evolve in the United States in the last few months has been has been emotionally as hard as COVID for me. Uh, I, I, I get really sad when I see that, you know, that violence, that that a, a violence of mind, not not yeah. so much the, you know, the Capitol Hill thing is one thing, but it's just the, uh, the clear, you know, uh, lack of connection that we're, we're going to have to fight through. And again, if I go back, you know, uh, civil riots in the 60s and, you know, what Lincoln and uh, Frederick Douglass went through. It's not new. So, you yeah. know, don't don't be so shocked. Right. But but try uh, as we can now that we have these new tools. Yeah. Uh, you know, I thought they would move us closer together, but they seem to have for, for the time being, at least become quite polarizing. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, now, you're a guy who uh, has spent a lot of time around around hockey players. And uh, Mike Commodore was a guest on my podcast many uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, like Mike was just so I love the fact that you can talk to retired hockey players because I feel sometimes they're a little bit more frank and open. For about sure. About what, yeah. You know, they're not representing an organization anymore. It's like, you know, permission to speak freely. And here it is, you know, and I love that. Um, yeah. But Mike, one of the things Mike talked about is that he was very surprised at the amount of former NHLers who are really struggling, you know, who are really having a hard time with this transition. And I don't know what it must be like to be 33 years of age and everything you've ever dreamt of doing is now gone. That side of your life is now over and you're just kind of left there, maybe broken up physically, maybe broken up mentally, and you have to figure out a way to navigate forward. Um, and, and Mike was very forthcoming about that and some of the stuff that he saw with with friends and was and also surprised with with who he found it in. You know, there were people that he thought, I, I thought that guy was doing better, but he, he, he's clearly not. Um, and so even those people that we think have it all, uh, ultimately, yeah. Evander Kane just, you know, filing for bankruptcy. Like people are struggling regardless of what that, again, that perception that we may have of them, what we think that is. It, it's irrelevant, totally irrelevant. I could think of so many examples. Paul Henderson scored in 72, three straight game winners, was the national hero and immediately fell into depression. You know, is this all there is? Uh, and he found Christianity, you know, the, without generalizing, the world is a little, I think, more secular than it once was. Mm -hmm. uh, our, uh, and so the, the, the guidance you sought, uh, the thing that held you together used to be religion. Uh, that is less a factor. And, and a lot of people don't turn to that as a, as a grounding. So they're, they're struggling to figure it out on their own. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, Steve Montador was a dear friend of Mike Commodore's and uh, you know, he didn't die of a, uh, mental illness that resulted in suicide, but he just kind of frittered away struggling uh, yeah. and uh, his health broke down and Commodore would have seen that. And, you know, there are countless examples of, uh, I remember Alex Petit, the diver from Montreal, mm -hmm. really enjoyed at the Olympics in Rio, Alex and I would uh, get together for a beer at uh, five in the evening, two beers, all I could have because I had to be up at 3.45 in the morning. I think he carried on and had wine at dinner. That's uh, the Quebec way. But I, I would I would go back into my room and study for some hours again. After the yeah. two beer, I didn't retain anything. Uh, and anyway, uh, he, he told me that uh, after the Olympics in uh, London, England, his uh, last Olympics, he was hunkered down in his room for over a month. He, he wouldn't leave the house, wouldn't leave the his place. And finally, his agent got a hold of him and said, look, you know, Alex, there's this fundraiser going on with this sponsor that has sponsored you for 10 years. You have to come out and make an appearance. And that broke him out of it. It actually was good. He went to that event out of guilt and thankfully, you know, got, got himself together. But sure, the, the, the emptiness we feel, as I said, I crashed a little after doing a simple interview series called In Conversation because I, the weight of it, the, you know, I had Shad and Chaos. What a what a what a series! Uh, and Shad, you know, he did a show called Hip Hop Evolution. Mm -hmm. And as I as I went and watched all the episodes of Hip Hop Evolution, I said, "What is wrong with you, Ron?" You, you 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 are like a guy growing up in the 60s and 70s who missed the British invasion. I right. had no idea that the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and all of this had ever happened. Yeah. That's that's me not knowing about hip hop. Uh, you know, right. I'm, I'm off in my own 70s classic rock uh, <laughs> and I've changed. I have on a dime. You know, again, that was a that was a, a 90 day epiphany. The, the, the 
murder of George Floyd it took to to kind of shake me out of it and and to just start to interview so many interesting guests that that just got me sorted a little bit that that have helped me to to kind of feel fresh and renewed and now yeah. as they say by the time you've made it you've had it i'm a little yeah, too yeah. old to do anything with this <laughs> this new wisdom but uh at least i have my own personal joy listening to hip-hop that's right that's right i just picture ron mcclain blowing down the streets of red deer and his uh with his convertible and just got got the uh, shad on panic and it's just lift kit on your car just blowing down gasoline alley that's what i yeah. picture is that what's going down now in the summertime well like the weekend i just love his new album and uh save your tears is the song that i can't get enough of that's not really hip-hop that's more of a pop uh effort by by the weekend like I grew up as a DJ, Trent, and we had, you know, Anne Marie won the Grammy in 1979 for her 78 song, uh, You Needed Me, and I was a big deal. Uh, BTO was hitting big in the United States. Uh, she was a big deal. She would take over Vegas the way Celine Dion would ultimately. Uh, and now when I'm listening to Hits 1 on Sirius XM, instead of, you know, my 70s classic rock, because I want to hear some <laughs> hip hop. That's right. Uh, when I'm listening to The Weeknd, followed by Justin Bieber, followed by uh, Shawn Mendes, you know, it's just like, wow, what is going on in our country? Uh, yeah. Just so, and Drake, of course. For sure. Uh, you know, sure. so that, it's a, it's a great time. And, but you, you need help to be uh, told, uh, to, to be, uh, again, sort of channeled. Uh, otherwise, you stay in your uh, lane yep. and you miss a lot. You do. You do. You do. Yeah, a lot of life goes by you for sure. What has been your greatest moment? Um, let's go hockey related. What's been your greatest moment for you in terms of a broadcaster? A moment where maybe, because I've had moments myself performing, whether it's just for laughs or a TV thing, where sometimes you can kind of step outside yourself, you float outside yourself a little bit and just mm -hmm. look down on you oh, for sure. doing this thing. And you got to kind of reel yourself back in and go, that's not what I need at the moment. I need to be in the moment to do the job. <clears throat> Have you had those moments? I do, I, I, not to sound uh, like I'm a martyr or a saint or something, but uh, like even this past weekend, Tony Barrar, is, uh, his parents moved from India in 1981. It was an extremely courageous thing. Uh, and, and now, because you're at Hockey Night, as long as I've been, every time I see a young broadcaster doing their thing, I just, especially when the stories are against all odds, whether it's Anthony Stewart or uh, uh, Tony Barrar or Harner Ryan Singh doing the play-by-play -play in English, uh, those, are, those are moments that I just think, Thank you, you know, for being at it long enough to be part of that. That's 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 kind of a like Barack Obama uh, was interviewed by Matt Galloway on November the 25th for The Current. And uh, Barack told the story of Paul McCartney serenading Michelle at the White House. And Barack said, I try to picture when she was one year old in 1965 in Chicago, race riots everywhere. And her parents looking at their one year old child and wondering what was in store for her. Could they ever have dreamt that a beetle would be serenading her as first lady at first lady of the USA at the White House, and uh, isn't it? And that Amazing. that's happening a lot. And those are those are my favorite moments when I when I see a, a child rise like Marianne Limpert in the two hundred IM at Atlanta Olympics. And for hockey, uh, look uh, Gretzky. I, I not to drop names, but when I texted Wayne after Dustin Johnson won the Masters in Augusta this year. And he sent me a little video of Tatum and River, Dustin's kids, Paulina and Dustin's kids. And Janet had shot the video at seven in the morning in Augusta when they were leaving the house. It was also, you know, apple pie and that's American, I know. But yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah just simple, right? Just yeah. simple. Uh, I thank God and pinch myself every day that I got to sit and yak with Wayne over a drink uh, and many others. Too many yeah, to yeah. mention, but uh, he, for me, is, you know, he, he's the one that got Harnarayan Singh, uh, you know, Sikh from Punjab, India, interested in hockey. Same with this Tony Brar that hosted on the weekend. Uh, what, a, what a powerful thing to be even remotely a part of that. Yeah, I would imagine. Um, one of my surreal moments was, uh, you know, when you join the cast of 22 Minutes, and I thought to myself, for me, you know, because it's a big build up to it and it gets announced and then you have this kind of this time of doing interviews and things. But then the day arrives where we're OK, now we're actually doing this. I'm flown to Halifax and I'm waiting behind those big bay doors at the old studio here that they just knocked down this this past summer. Ah. And, uh, you know, you're, you're going through the old hallways and there's black and white photos of old sketches. And and, the, and you realize only so many people have been a cast member of the show. And in that moment, it hit me. Now, I was minutes away from being introduced and I, I started going, oh, OK. This is Christ, you know, and, and I had that yeah. moment of like, not the time. This is not the time. You need to go back inside you. And uh, and then, of course, you take a deep breath and you step into it and you let it become what it's going to become. 
Have you had that moment? Have you had that moment for yourself personally, just on a professional level where you went, oh, all right, here, here we go. And, and Trent, I had extreme anxiety when I was young. Uh, and I didn't tell anybody, of course, thought I was the only person in the world that had ever suffered a panic attack. Right. <laughs> and I, I would have them frequently in 1984 and five when I was doing the Flames telecasts. Uh, even before that in Red Deer, when I was the weatherman, I used to think, okay, it's you for eight minutes. They had right. some problems with the news clips and now you got to go eight minutes, you alone. And I don't have eight minutes prepared. <laughs> Right, And away would go my heart. And uh, I was thunderstruck my first hockey night in Canada. And I was thunderstruck my second uh, NHL awards. First one, I was fine. Ignorance is bliss, right? But, right. Uh, you know, they always, Patrick Roy said, the encore performance is the hardest. Yes. He's so right. Um, and I, I have had those, you know, this is hockey night in Canada. Um, but again, I, I, like I go back to that, what if I lost my leg? Would you be okay? Would you still be you? Would you still be whole? Uh, I had those conversations as an eight-year-old. Didn't stop me from having panic attacks for <laughs> close to twenty years, right. but it did give me one idea. And then the, the panic attack solution for me was to, okay, Ron, for God's sakes, get over yourself. Right. Think of why you're here, who you're doing it for. You know, not not yeah. yourself. If you yeah. stop thinking about how good you're going to look or may intelligent or whatever, that that's the big, you know, that's the road to hell. Is when you start to wonder how you'll do how you right. will rank you know status anxiety yes and i and so you when you tell me when you went in on the stage that night uh like what was your coping method to to find you, you mentioned breathing which everybody i didn't know about that either yeah uh, <laughs> right. yeah how, how did you do were you a deer in headlights uh, were you stiff or did you kind of break free and do it yeah i think you rely on you rely on just being in the moment and so it's kind of just about delivering what you have to deliver and you brought up a good point you know, someone told me many years ago, they said, you know, suffering is, is about thinking about yourself. And if you can stop thinking about yourself and think about all these smiling faces who have worked hard all week and they're coming out just to have a good time and enjoy themselves, it's not about you anymore. You know, you suddenly yeah. think like, oh, yeah, this is a really positive and great thing. And I think about it all the time doing stand up before I'm about to go out. You can really get in your own head and, and become self-conscious. It's not the time for that. It's the time to think about look at all these folks who bought tickets months ago and they've come to see you and they they're going through horrible lives and job loss and divorces and losing parents. And they, just, they just want to come here for an hour and have a good time. And when you do that, you, you literally feel your body change. You literally feel your shoulders drop and, and you can just be in the moment and it's not about you anymore. And it's, it's, it's magic. It literally, I really believe it's magic. There's a choreographer, Marina Zueva, who's a coach, choreographer, figure skating. She taught uh, Tessa Virtue and Scott Moyer and got them two gold medals. And uh, she always said, uh, don't worry about the judges. They're just happy for a night, not at the office. <laughs> and uh, she kind of said it, you know, and yeah, yeah. She, she, she was amazing. And I, yeah, that, that's, that's a, the, the great uh, gift of, uh, of us is, a, is it's like Grapes and I would say, and, and many of my colleagues at Hockey Night in Canada think, how many people's nights we made right. by by showing that or showing this or saying this. Yes. Uh, like I have a thing for Johnny Bauer coming up for the next weekend and I'm oh, just nice. so excited. You know, it, it just it relates to the modern game. So I don't want to be <laughs> yeah, yeah. kids. I, I, I'll need 12 minutes to explain who Johnny is, but uh, once I get through that, uh, yeah. yeah. And, and that's because I know it'll just make, people feel good. Right. Yeah, and yeah. that's, I figure that's kind of our job. Exactly. Yeah. To, to kind of share this and, and spread some light a little bit. It's interesting because, uh, you know, Willie O'Ree, of course, you know, yesterday was, uh, was the anniversary of him uh, breaking into the NHL. And, and we did a piece with him a few years ago and just, you know, that's one of a big moment for me was to sit across from Willie O'Ree and just this, just exuding class and knowing his story. And to me, just, it was so inspirational. And the ripple effect of that, people don't know in the moment. When you're living your own life and just on your own journey, it's really hard to be aware of the ripples of this and how it will affect others because you don't, you can't, there's no way you can measure that. And so for me, that's a big moment of, of sitting across from this guy who was nice enough to give us his time. And it was, it was a hall of fame weekend, obviously. And so, you know, I'm walking around and there's Peter Forsberg and Martin Brodeur is ordering breakfast next to me and I'm poking Corey and the same guy. And I go, Corey, I said, Marty Brodeur is over there eating eggs. Am I staring at him too long? Am I, I shouldn't look at him now, you know? And so, and then sitting down with Willie the next morning, I'm like, to me, all the other things that happened in my life and career, whatever. But I go, I had those moments and no one can take those away from you, you know? And so right. I, that's the stuff that you hold on to. Well, a lot of the athletes, Trent, the, the Canada Games, um, they'll they'll reference their time at the Canada Games before the big stage of the Olympics. Right. And But I also think of, of, you know, Gretzky loved the uh, cafeteria at yeah. Nagano. So he right. got that one and only Olympics and uh, heartbreak in the shootout to uh, Dominic Oshik. Uh, but he talked... 
endlessly about the cafeteria and meeting the different athletes. And there's that, you know, bond, obviously. And I remember Sue Holloway, her two favorite, um, well, she, she marched, she was a two sport athlete. She was a paddler and a cross country skier. So she marched into both Montreal, which was our Olympics, our first, and she marched into the Olympic stadium in uh, Los Angeles, which was hundred thousand people at the Coliseum. Unbelievable. And in uh, Garmisch Partenkirk in Germany, when she competed in the winters in 76, she sat in the cafeteria and at her table, now these are before a lot of people's time, but Toller Cranston was our great figure skater. Franz Klammer was a skier from Austria and Vladislav Trechak, the goalie for the Russian mm-hmm. national hockey team, were at her table. Those three and her. And she said, <laughs> like, okay, I don't care if I finish 1,000th. I, I just sat with those three. Yeah, uh, yeah it's a, the, the communal aspect to to the Olympics. And that's why I love, you know, I was talking to Adam Vancouverton uh, the other day. He's now a member of parliament for Bilton. Uh, in government. Uh, But prior to that, he was an Olympic champion paddler in kayak. uh, And he would train with other countries, athletes. He didn't train here just in, uh, he's a member of the Burlow Canoe Club in Oakville, Ontario, where I live. But he would go down to Australia and train with a a friend there. He had a friend from Sweden he trained with, a friend from Great Britain. And I said, you know, Adam, there's a lot to be said for uh, the universality of the way kayakers approach their sport. There is rivalry, but there's such togetherness at every element of it, you know, including training. I said, so that that's a always keep that in your head when you're in government and uh, and you're dealing. And he said, honestly, Ron, I'm not a guy that's uh, pushing people across the aisle away. I work, you know, they have to, it's a minority yeah, yeah. government, but, but I, I definitely understand the need to pull the conservatives and the NDP and uh, green party and independence into my world. Uh, so it was a really nice uh, thing to think about. And that's Vancouver and, and kayakers that, you know, uh, for me, uh, he taught, Vancouverton taught a guy named Mark Oldershaw who got on the podium in London. Before that, Larry Kane taught Vancouverton. Larry Kane won gold in LA. And before Larry Kane was a paddler from Oakville named John Wood. John Wood won silver at uh, Montreal in 76. Just before the race, the Russian, his arch rival, Alexander Rogoff, was struggling to get uh, oil off his hands. Either a committee boat or a camera boat, somehow oil had gotten in the water and it was on this Russian's hands. So, John Wood, the Canadian, kept a towel under his seat, which had sandpaper sewn in, damp Ah. sandpaper, and that would get the oil off. A towel wouldn't do it, but the sandpaper would. And he gave the sandpaper to the Russian, and the Russian beat him for 34 by 34 one-hundredths of a second for the gold medal. Uh, It's a great story of sportsmanship. Now, this John Wood, who inspired Larry Kane, Adam Vancouver, and Mark Oldershaw, died at 62 of mental health that resulted in suicide. Wow. I mean, you, you just step back and look at this whole thing and you think, okay, amazing. there's a, there's a, there's a mystery and uh, yeah. something in the cosmos that could explain it. And I don't think we ever will. No, we'll never be able to do it. Um, your work ethic, where do you think you get that from? One of the things that I learned early in entertainment is I always thought, and it's come up a lot on the podcast, is that you know, talent is enough. And if you're talented enough, you will find your way. And I, I quickly realized that's bullshit because it's so much of it is – are you willing to bear down and do the work? Talent, lots of people have it. But the people who are willing to sit down and, and really put the shift in are the people that tend to be around for a long time. Where did that come from for you? Well, pride in performance, right, Trent? The minute you start is uh, and, and you get one compliment, uh, then you know you got to live up to it. So I to- told you earlier, the encore performance is the hardest one. And I've experienced that so many times that, uh, okay, you can't just rest on laurels as easy. I, I do believe if you have the genius then you probably can get away without the prep. Right. But if you're just talent, uh, then you need the prep. Uh, my my The same guy that taught me to let my guests be the star, he said, Ron, for uh, for you and, and for anybody really on radio, it's 10 hours of prep to one hour on air. Wow. I thought, oh, that's ridiculous. But he was right. Uh, and, and, it, and it gives you confidence. You know, preparation is half the battle to putting yourself at peace because now you know you've put in the work. You, as, as Jeff Gowan used to say, you sink to the level of training. When you're yes. under pressure, you sink to the level of your training. So I, I, I do it out of uh, uh, both responsibility, pride and performance, guilt if I don't do it, you know, like we are about working out or anything. Uh, it's all those things rolled into one. And it's fun. I yeah. mean, I, I just, I so enjoy learning. I, I just, like, I, I was indirectly looking up. I told you I'm going to do something about Johnny Bauer. I fell into it. I was I was doing a story about Rocket Richard's last goal was April 12, 1960, the day I was born. So I always, you know, fancy yeah. that as a, what a lucky coincidence. Uh, anyway, I went to watch 
Rocket's goal. And I ended up watching the 1960 Stanley Cup and I saw Johnny Bauer do something. And it was, I'll tell you, uh, it's going to end up on Hockey Day in Canada, but it'll be on uh, generators first. Um, (laughs) Jean Beliveau shooting, Bernie Jeffreyon, Boom Boom Jeffreyon is driving the net and he completely obliterates Bauer, sends him cartwheeling 10 feet in the air. What does Johnny do? He doesn't get up and poleaxe Boom Boom, who's now tangled up in the mesh. He helps him to extricate his skate. He, he he spends literally a minute in the middle of a Stanley Cup final playoff game against his arch rival Montreal, against the guy who's just smoked him. He helps him to get his skate. In the old days, the skates weren't like tuck blades. They had a yeah, a little hook on the that end. Would get, yeah, hooked up in the mesh. And he's, he's working <laughs> feverishly to get his enemy loose so that he can, I don't know what, fire a 100-mile slap shot at his mask. Face. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Great, great. Uh, so that's learning. I, I just, you know, again, knock on wood. Uh, if I could learn till I'm 100, uh, if I, yeah, if I could learn till the day I die. How's that? Yeah. Uh, by the way, this is a weird thought for you, but uh, on February the 12th, again, I was doing something for someone else and I was telling them how I like to know how many days have I lived. Because often when I when, when I lose a dear friend, Alex Louie uh, died of uh, sarcoma uh, cancer, a kid from uh, Welland. Uh, and I think, okay, he had these many days. That's, that's not great, but it's God. He had that many days. I feel good. Uh, on February 12th, I will have lived 22,222 days. So this is a 22 story for you. Wow. So 22, two, 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 uh, five deuces. And I just think, well, that's kind of, now I'm jinxing it. (laughs) (laughs) This is not a good story to tell in advance of February the 12th. And if, and if I'm gone, uh, what a what a video we have for the funeral. <laughs> he called it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I didn't quite call it. <laughs> wrong again, you can say. Wrong way, Ronnie. Oh, that is amazing. That is amazing. Oh, man. That's so cool. Um, oh, man. Thank you so much for doing this, Ron. It was awesome to catch up. It was just good to see you. That's one of the great yeah. things about doing the podcast now is that I uh, I have excuses to, <laughs> to just catch up with people, uh, you know, and friends that I love. And so you can hang out for a little bit and get caught up and see what's going on. Um, what, what's coming up for you? What's what's going on? You got the, the Johnny Bauer piece. And uh, what else is going to be going on for you for the next few months? We do. The one thing I would point out is Scotiabank Hockey Day in Canada happens the day after the 22,222 uh, <laughs> on February 13th. You have to be there for that. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm hoping to be there for that. Uh, and uh, yeah, it'll be a show where we're going to plan some nice things uh, around uh, just diversity and inclusion is obviously a very big thing in everything right now. And it's been, bit corporatized but but it won't be when we do it we, right, yeah. we will we will have uh we will put a heart to it and i i'm excited about that as i said this year for me was uh you know just a great great listening year mm-hmm. and i hope that we get to listen on february 13th to some really soulful hockey stories so that that's about the only thing other than just keep it on yeah yeah i hear you well thanks so much my friend great to talk to you and yeah. uh enjoy the rest of the year all the best much love trent yeah all right buddy. Take care.